This episode is brought to you by our friends at DailyDrip.com. DailyDrip makes keeping up to date on programming skills easier. You already know how much time it takes to find good resources and learn new languages. What if the hard part of that was already done for you? Sign up for DailyDrip and pick a topic that you want to learn about. Want to learn Elm or how about Elixir? Maybe you want to brush up on your CSS and HTML. Every weekday you'll get a short video or reading delivered to you via email. The best part is it only takes five minutes a day. With a special coupon code just for Bike Shed listeners, if you sign up using the coupon code BIKESHED as one word, you'll save $9 on your first month, which means you can try out the Elm topic for free. Don't forget to use the coupon code BIKESHED, one word, to show support for our podcast. Make learning part of your daily routine with DailyDrip.com. Hello. Hi. How's it going? It's good. Um, my grandma just arrived, so I might need a second. Oh, uh, she should come on the podcast. She should come on the podcast. Yeah. Hi, Grandma. Yeah, my co-host wants to record hi. with you instead of me. Oh, hi, Grandma. <laughs> yes. What should I? How are you? How are you, my grandson? I'm good. How are, how are you? you? Hello. Good, good to see you too. You look great. Hi, Nicole. Right. I'm about to record a podcast. He wants to talk to me. <laughs> hi. Hello. You're not serious. No. Okay. Anyway, I need to record. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs> Does she have strong Let's just do it. In the, yeah, does she have any opinions on Rust? <laughs> yes, she thinks that it's very important to uh, make sure that you get your car checked up regularly to avoid any significant buildup of rust. You want that undercoating? Make sure none of the undercarriage gets all rusty. Exactly. Yeah. Don't want your code getting oxidized. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, greetings from Albuquerque. Hello. Greetings from, I don't know, I'm still in Boston. I don't You're go still anywhere. still in Boston. Yeah. The weather here is amazing. It's 13 degrees out. That's um, amazing. What is that in Freedom Unit? It's like, I think that's 50 degrees oh, in Freedom Unit. Oh, look at you. So you're pretending like you don't know that you don't know Fahrenheit? I know Fahrenheit. <laughs> I just don't immediately units. know the conversion. <laughs> but I know on my phone it said it was 13 degrees. <laughs> I know, fa- I know, like I know Fahrenheit, but you, I, I mentally have a model now of how different, like how far apart temperatures are, but not like I don't see a temperature and then immediately in my head convert to Fahrenheit. See, I feel. How long did it take before you switched your phone to like, oh, just show me temperatures in Celsius? Like when I moved, because I figured if I didn't do that, I was never going to. Hmm. I think I would. It's minus out. five in Ottawa right now. So minus five Celsius. Okay, that's cold. But not not the same as minus five that I was thinking. No, that's it's like um, <laughs> this I is think really good podcasting. <laughs> Fifteen twenty degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. They get a lot closer when you get below zero. Twenty three minus five is twenty three Fahrenheit. Twenty three Fahrenheit. That's cold. It's like thirty five here, something like that. Forty. I don't know. It's officially freezing. It's officially freezing. Tom says. We got 40 centimeters of snow. I have no idea how much snow that is. I literally have no idea how much snow that is. I do not have a mental model for metric. Uh, A centimeter is just slightly less than an inch. No, that's not even, that's not at all true. Yes, it is. No, No, you're right. It's not even close. (laughs) 40 (laughs) centimeters is 15 inches. (laughs) Well, there you go. Uh. We definitely did not get 40 inches of snow. I would not have made it to the airport if we'd gotten 40 inches of snow. That's fair. So, see what I have here? A Rubik's Cube? Yeah. I'm going to learn how to solve this this weekend. This long weekend. They're pretty easy to solve. 
Yeah, I I know some of the like there's algorithms involved. So like maybe people don't know about this and they should go out and get themselves a nice like Amazon speed cube and learn how to do it. But there's like algorithms. Oh, is that like a do. real quality cube? It's you know, it's not like the one with the stickers. It's got like the plastic is dyed and you can spin it. I'm gonna spin it and Tom's gonna get really mad because it's gonna get picked up by the mic, but like you can spin it real easy. Okay, but it's not one of the ones where you where you like barely touch it yeah, and yeah, it yeah, yeah. goes exactly 90 degrees. No, no, no. It's not like super lubed up or anything like that. But uh, yeah, it's like a programmery thing to do once you realize that like, oh, there's actually just like you look at it, you see it in a pattern and then you apply this algorithm a bunch of times and then it gets to this pattern and then you apply this different algorithm a bunch of times. So uh, that's how I'm going to spend my Thanksgiving, I think. <laughs> as soon as the awkward political conversation starts i'll just pull out my rubik's cube put on my headphones so yeah i'm gonna work on my rubik's cube computers um so i've been working on a couple episodes ago we had ian anderson on he talked about the purple train app the react native app that we've been making here and there's some things that i wanted it to do that it doesn't currently do and mostly those are related to like it needs better data back from the api so we integrate with the mbta's api which gives us real-time data on schedules and predictions and things like that and that's uh, the API is written in Elixir. And I was like, I haven't done Elixir in a little while. Let me like get back into it. There's some things I want to have happen here. And you guys are building the API as well? Yeah. yeah. So okay. we're, build, we're building an API. So we talked about this a little bit in the episode. But the MBTA has an API, but we're building an API in the middle. Okay. I guess uh, as the, the, the term of art is backend for frontend, right? So we're building a specific backend for our frontend that interfaces with a different backend. And in that way, like we're doing some caching so that we don't have to hit the MBTA as often as if you were hitting the MBTA directly. And then we're also like making the data look like how we want our app to consume the data rather than the crazy way the MBTA presents the data, which may or may not be tied into how Google Transit likes to get the data. Probably is exactly how Google Transit likes to get the data, but it doesn't quite make sense for what we want to do. Sure. Makes sense. So yeah, so I've been doing that a lot and it's been interesting like i at first was like oh we just need this additional field like the thing i wanted to get out was coach number which is like when you're boarding a train when a, when a train gets assigned to a route it will have a coach number and you can look for that coach number as you get into the like if you go into north station there's like 10 tracks at north station and the big board will tell you like oh this train you know the 515 train to haverhill is boarding on track six but sometimes slightly before that this api will have the coach number of the train available before they tell you what track so you can look and say like, oh, it says it's train 1644. So let me go and look at all these tracks to see if 1644 is sitting at any of these, at any of the tracks. And you can get on before anybody else get, or you can go to the doors before anybody else goes to the doors. And this gets you preferential seating. So it's really nice. So it's like, I want this, I want this feature in our app. I want to be able to know this. And then I also want to okay. know like what, when the boarding information becomes available, what track. So there is a lot of crazy, like innumerable type stuff that we had to do the whole thing is like if i presented this problem it would be a good interview like here's some json structure i want to know this and you'd have to be like okay so here what i want to do is i want to partition and then i want a flat map over this and then i want to <laughs> but ultimately we do a bunch of work and then decided that we were going to cache it and then we would hit the mbta like once a minute or once every 30 seconds and that means all the clients that you know once this app is like super popular and has thousands of users <laughs> They're not all hitting that API. They're hitting our API, and our API hits the MBTA only once for all the data that it needs. Is there worries that the MBTA couldn't handle load? The MBTA limits the number of requests that you can make in a certain window or whatever. So by disintermediating, right. we can say, like, we know we will never make more than, let's say, we make two requests a minute for 24 hours. Well, no, we'll never make more than that many requests. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. 
also just like i don't know it was an interesting thing to do so sure the interesting part about that is it's now you need once you when you want to cache this stuff in memory or anywhere really that's going to be shared state and then it can be updated so it is mutable so yes. you have we have shared mutable state now and it's like okay well how are we going to deal with this and so i got to play with gen servers and agents and elixir so gen server is an elixir concept agent is built on top of that or gen server is an erlang concept sorry um, and that's exposed in Elixir too, but then agents are built on top of that, which are basically simple data storage, uh, mutable data storage. So that's been uh, fun because I hadn't really had to deal with that. I mean, I deal with some, like in any web application, the database is your shared mutable state, but there's like an right. actual, there's an actual physical separation there. Uh, well, there's a network, human. there's a network separation there somehow or a Unless process separation or a, yeah, sure. I guess. But this made me think about it more. So it was fun to get to use those. And then once I learned like, oh, okay, this is how you use an agent or a gen server. That's cool. And then it came time to like, I wanted to better test some of the responses that we get back from the API. And the way we had been doing that before was just like sticking data directly into our cache that we knew we would be getting from, from there, like processed data. Like the data we stick in the cache is slightly processed from the MBTA to make it easier to find the data we want later. And I was like, well, I'm not comfortable with this because we haven't tested actual responses. Like we don't have we don't have the part that actually processes that data for caching tested yet. So I wrote, I basically extracted all the all the parts that talk to the MBTA into an MBTA real time client because they call it their real time API. So I extracted an MBTA real time client, and then I was like, okay, well now I need WebMock because I want to mock these responses and and come back with some data. And I started doing some googling, and then I was like, very quickly was like, this isn't like. This doesn't yeah, it's feel not really like... a thing outside of Ruby, basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it also just isn't. And I was like, the only reason why do I need to mock here? Like, I don't. I actually want a fake. Like, I just want to have a fake MBTA that has like some. I can have some fixtures that I save off. And so I started going down the line of, okay, well then I guess I just do this like. So I have the real time client, then I have a test client, and the test client has the same interface. And there's actually like, that got me into digging into like behaviors, which are a thing. Behaviors and callbacks are a thing in Ecto, where you can say like, or not in Ecto, sorry, in Elixir where you can say that modules that have this behavior must have these callbacks defined, must have these basically right. functions defined. So it's cool. So it's I an interface. Say, yeah, it's an interface. Sorry. So like I define the interface for the MBTA client that the MBTA client implements, and then I say that the test client also implements that interface. So that was fun. And then I realized like, oh, I actually want to be, I don't want to have this thing just serve like static fixtures. I want to be able to, from a test, to say like, hey, next time I ask you for predictions, give me this back. Right, I want to be able to control it from there, which is what you can do with like sure. a true fake. And so then I was like, oh, that's also just an agent. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun to like build. I was like, oh, okay. So now like this thing is all just built. Like it was super simple to build a fake, whereas that hasn't been my experience in Ruby because there were these huh. nice primitives around like, here's how you do the shared global state. You do this and then you're going to get these. You basically get a lot of this for free. So by limiting the options that you had to implement it, that you felt that that gave you more guidance into what to do. Right. And I guess like if I, the, the, the fake I ended up writing was very simple. And I like really, if I looked at it, it's just like, oh, this is a Ruby class with adder accessors. And that's right. it. But for some reason it felt fancier and it felt like more like. I mean, it definitely sounds fancier. <laughs> right. And it also felt more in line with uh, avoiding web mock and things like that or mocking the equivalent in Elixir, as far as I can tell, to something like WebMock would be mocking the HTTP library that you're using. 
yeah, that's probably the approach I might maybe not would have immediately leapt to, but would have th- would have thought to do is instead of having the client be the behavior, instead have the HTTP client be the behavior, and then inject the HTTP client into your MTBA real time client. Right. I do always just with that sort of stuff like to specifically do my faking or mocking or stubbing, whatever term you want to use. I, I always do like to do that specifically at the HTTP layer because it means that you know that you are, from your code's point of view, you are testing the entire stack. Right. My initial thing was like, oh, I want to reach for web mock. And then I was like, well, what if I just mock this part of the call rather than web mock? Just like, let me look at some mocking libraries that are out there. And we can link to it in the show notes. There is like a popular mocking library for Elixir. But it just like, I tried it out and I was like, I don't really like the way this feels. It doesn't doesn't feel as seamless as it felt doing Ruby and doing object-oriented programming. Yeah. And I started doing more looking into this and like there was this article. First, it was a tweet by Jose talking about like, just don't do this in Elixir. And he basically is fighting hard against having that type of stuff be like a accepted pattern in Elixir. I mean... You end up just for every other languages then, which is to do proper mocking, you need DI. Right. And that's ultimately what he suggests for, like, because the, the immediate question is like, okay, well, then what about things that need to do HTTP? How do I right. How do I handle that? Which was the exact thing I was looking at. And what he suggested was basically like, oh, you have a different module that you use in your tests and you find a way to use that at runtime. It's like, oh, okay, that's dependency injection. Right. That's fine. It's what like right. every language other than Ruby does, but it's also just it's really nice to not have to do that in Ruby. Yeah, I guess, but like it's weird because in Ruby, I'm very much like I mock and stub and everything all over the place. Like I'm just like oh, I don't need to worry about this yet. It's this, and then I make sure like oh, I have this integration test that's going to do this whole thing. That's fine. Don't worry about it. And with this Elixir program, this Elixir app, I'm not doing that. Granted, there's like 15 tests right now. It does a very li- <laughs> it does a very limited number of things. But I also have tests that actually hit the real API. And I'm like, yeah, okay, this is reasonable. I'm going to leave this in here. Like, I've, I don't know if I've ever really done that before. Like, sure, I, but, I run right, it in development like, mode, but. I like to do that in conjunction with VCR. Yeah. Especially to avoid rate limits. Right. So VCR will let you say, like, if the cassette, which is what they call the fixture, is older than this date, then go ahead and run it for real and update the cassette. Right. Right. And actually, I should I should clarify something here as well, because I've seen a lot of people do what I consider to be a major misuse of VCR. So I have some ground rules for when I'm using VCR for like sanity, how to go about using it. Make sure your cassettes expire at least at maximum two days. Put your cassettes in git ignore. And just in general, your test suite should be able to pass without VCR. Right. But that like I thought about that, too. And I feel like that limits the types of assertions that you can make about the return data from those things. Abs- well, it depends on the API that you're using. Right. Like right? For, in this case, we're talking about schedules. So the, right. the data is always changing. Right. You're never getting back the same right. data. But so and that's fine. But like VCR is not a tool that was designed to make things that are like when you're dealing with external APIs, you want to only test things that are a, a property of the world that will not change. Right. And VCR is not a tool to make properties of the world that are changing immutable right. it's not designed to do that and like maintaining that if anything actually does have to change in how you're interfacing with the data or like if the actual api changes out from underneath you and you need to update your code it's not fun to update those cassettes like at that point you reach for webmock you reach for something that's much more specifically like i'm not hitting the real api i'm returning this known data instead if that's what you're doing have your tests say that's what you're doing to me, VCR is a tool to, like, you're hitting real endpoints, but you want to make your tests faster or you want to avoid rate limits. Yeah. 
And like, I could see a mixture of like the approach I took and the VCR approach, right? Like right now sure. I say I have a, I have a test that just hits the endpoint. But if the, if that became like, I'm running these tests often enough and there are enough people running these tests that like, we're going to start hitting our rate limit, then using something like VCR would be good, except that it, like I talked about the types of assertions you can make are limited. But if I'm talking about like an overall acceptance level thing, then maybe that's fine. Maybe I just say like, hey, make a request for trips that satisfy these stops and just make sure you get a response back, right? Make sure there yeah. are some trips. And you're like, okay, cool. And then I can use the other layer of like swapping out my MBTA client to test like, if we get data that looks like this, then it then this happens, that kind of thing. And that's kind of the approach I want to take. And depending on the data, like if, if you're writing, for example, Twitter client, you're basically <laughs> um, from a testing point of view, unless you test like the method that gets a specific tweet or something like that. Yeah, you could test like you could you could set up like test Twitter accounts that never change, right? And you just have like that's true. You could do that, right? But like for for example, so one place where I felt like I hit a good balance on this was when I was working on Cigar Finder, which I think I think the server for that's open source. If not, I will I, I'll make the repo public. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's an app that I have on the Play Store that. Probably doesn't still work because APIs changed and I haven't checked it in like a year. But it was an app I made four years ago for Android and iOS because I was tired of traveling and like not knowing what cigar shops would carry my brands and nobody put their shit on the internet and I hated calling them. So it was sort of a crowdsourced database where just when you were running the app, once every two or three days, if you were at a cigar shop and you'd been there for a few minutes, it would send you a push notification asking, does this shop carry this single cigar? Yes or no. And so it built a database that way. And so the the way it got the list of stores was by literally just hitting the Google Places API with the keyword cigar. Mm-hmm. And then I would take the top 20 results from that and store those in the database. And so I had a class that was responsible for hitting the Google Places API and testing that. Like, that is a data set that changes. It doesn't change super, super often, but you'd expect it to change even on a weekly basis. But the sort of tests I would write weren't like, when I make this call, I expect this exact response back. It would be, for example, if I search for cigars in Albuquerque, the biggest cigar shop in New Mexico, which is in Albuquerque, should appear higher in the list than the cigar shop in Rio Rancho, uh, which is a suburb of Albuquerque. Or if I search for movie theaters at my old apartment address, the movie theater that was literally across the street should appear higher in the list than the movie theater across town. Like stuff like that. These are things unlikely to change unless those movie theaters or cigar shops go away. In which case, right. you're like, like oh, okay, and, and, I see that, and that could happen. Right. But it's not the sort of thing where like next week my tests are going to fail. Right. And so even though the exact result set would change, I I could still find those properties that I knew would remain consistent and test those. Right. And in in the case of like the scheduling app, there are very few things that I could say other than like, yeah, you get some trips back because the number of trips you get back might be different. The types of trips like I could test that like they're in the right order. They come back and like the earliest trip is first and the latest trip is last, like that kind of thing. And some basic stuff about it. And that would probably be a good idea. Like, that's kind of what I'm doing when I have, like, the test that hits the API anyway. Like, go ahead and hit the API with this test. And I could stick VCR. There's XVCR, which is, like, the Elixir version of VCR. I kind of (laughs) hate... Sorry, that's a strong word. I don't really like the word hate. I try and teach my children not to say it. I... I kind of... Dislike? Dislike the domain language of VCR. (laughs) Like... (laughs) <laughs> it's it tortures that metaphor of cassette recording and I, know, I, I love it just because talking about vcrs nowadays is so is so tongue-in-cheek i also wonder how many people actually how many people use those libraries and have no idea what it's talking about i mean they only have to be probably what five years younger than me to have not 
How old are to, you? To like, I'm 26. Probably. I don't know. I mean, I think. I mean, VCRs were a thing when I was still in middle school. But right. like, if they stopped being a thing. I mean, they, DVDs were a thing long before I got rid of my VCR, though. Right. And if, and if you grew up where DVDs were always a thing. And then, so, like, you get things like the cassette library, and you're like, what the hell is the cassette library? What are you talking about? You, oh, you mean your, you mean my fixtures? Like, <laughs> that's what you mean? I don't know. I, I, I love it, personally. I think, <laughs> I think it's great. I also, like... Like, the metaphor works really well. To, to take a tangent for a second, I blew a number of people's minds in Slack a while ago when I explained to them where Radio Button comes from. Do you know where Radio Button comes from? I mean, I'm assuming it's the style of button that like that style of button where one can only one can be selected was originally on a radio because that's how you switch stations. Right. But a lot of people have no idea that it has anything to do with a physical radio or why it's called a radio button or anything like that. So I had to like go to Google Images and then like paste an image of the of the thing and be like, okay, see those buttons and how one of them's pressed down? One of them is pressed down at all times, which is actually slightly different than like you could you could fake it by like remember you could do like the half press on one of did you ever actually interface with one of these? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so you could do like a half press on one of the buttons that was stuck out and then get the thing into a state where none of the buttons were pressed, but it really didn't like that. Like one of the buttons had to be pressed at all times. And like, Mine, I saw when I was... you turned it off, it unpressed all of them. Oh, interesting. So what happens when you turn it on? What stations? It, I guess it's just tuned to whatever it got left on and you don't and you The don't way you turn it on is by, pu- is by pushing a station. Ah, well, there you go. So yeah, I just explained that to a bunch of like younger web developers who had no idea what that is or things like, uh, so, so like radio button is a thing we're stuck with that at this point I'm explaining to people what a radio button is that we're not too far from explaining to people what a radio what is. What a radio is, yeah. Like, <laughs> okay, so I've, 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 got, I've got a couple of, of good ones. Okay. Um, I was talking to my niece and nephew. They call Ethernet cables Wi-Fi cables. <laughs> They're uh, 12 and 10, I think. I, I mean, nephew. it's the cable that brings the internet to the wi-fi i guess is that why they call it the wi-fi cable or well, is no, it just because they, internet is wi-fi right internet is wifi. anything that brings you internet is wi-fi right because they, oh. they they've never lived in a world where internet came in any form other than wi-fi i don't think they even understand that the, there's a wireless router that plugs in with a physical cable or that like wi-fi even stands for wireless like right. or wireless fidelity or yeah what that's right. what it is yeah, right? it's wireless fidelity so interesting yeah and then, and then my, my favorite though is just to them because they've never seen a floppy disk. So to them, the save icon right. is the save icon. It's a meaningless shape. Right. It's probably similar to the power icon for a lot of people nowadays. Yeah, the power icon almost never made sense to me. And then one day I was like, oh, it's a zero and a one. Like, It's also back when it was the push button power switches on computers. And that's the, that's the, the circuit diagram for that specific type of switch. Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is the part where we, we become old men of tech or something. I also, yeah. this is this doesn't get used in programming jargon, but at one point, I don't know, a couple years ago, I made a joke about the turbo button, <laughs> and people were like, what the hell are you talking about? I was like, oh, no. I remember, we, t- we talked about the turbo button before. Okay. <laughs> See? We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're retreading old content now. <laughs> well, we're on our 90th episode. It's okay. Are we on 90? This is 90, yeah. Oh, man. We gotta do something big for 100. <laughs> Maybe we can explain why the show is called what it's called. Um, <laughs> so back to mocking. Um, I just yeah. found it interesting that like, A, I read the stuff from Jose, who's obviously very influential in this community since he wrote the language, um, where he was like, I don't want to do mocking. But personally, in Ruby, I do mocking all the time. And when you say mocking, are you talking actual verification of the methods that were called with specific arguments? Yes. 
yes, I do assert received or, you know, expect to have received, like that kind of thing. Okay. All, all the time in Ruby. And I find it useful. I don't know if I find it useful. I really kind of find it useful in that, like, oh, God, this thing takes a lot of state to get set up in a proper way that if I were going to, or, like, there's a lot of side effects to this thing, and I want to I avoid mean, those I, side effects. It's definitely useful for side effects. Right. I, I, I tend to prefer stubs. NDI, like even when I'm not forced to, I for that by default, and that it's just nice to be able to fall back to like I can just mock out global mutable state like the internet when I need to. Mm -hmm. But I do tend to prefer the form of testing of instead of asserting when we're just talking about like an object that's difficult to set up, rather than testing that it receives certain methods with certain arguments. I usually try to prefer like setting up a fake object that, based on what it returns, I can I can infer that it was called at the right time and or receive the right arguments but doesn't that depend on whether the thing you're testing is like a command or a query right if the thing is a command it's returned sure. it's return value is meaningless so right. have have received is really the best you can do that's when i reach for a mock if i'm if i'm if i'm actually right if i'm unable to test if the, the side effects are difficult to test i do right. still try to prefer just testing the side effects if i can so then that's a mock right because you're you're saying have like i expect that this method has right. been received would you call if I don't assert that the method was received, but like if I set something up with, I'm trying to think of the RSpec syntax right now, where I say like uh, allow foo to receive bar with ABC, and then and return and return expected return, right? And then in that's the, still mock because you're specifically st stating it should receive this in these exact arguments. But it is the it's the I can't change this interface way of doing what you were describing, where you're like injecting something you're like it, it's the closest you can right. come without changing the interface well and that's right so that's i mean sam was talking about this when we had him on that's the whole point of a lot of those parts of our spec is that you're not always test driving something from scratch you can't always design something to test in the perfect way that you want to test it sometimes you are just working with code that was written without good tests and it, those are the places where being able to mock out existing objects mock global mutable state stub constants stub method chain that's when all of that stuff is really, really useful, even if you don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole, if you can avoid it on greenfield projects. And unfortunately, when you're writing Rails apps, some of that stuff is just Rails. Like, you don't have, you can't, like, we've talked about doing, like, dependency injection and controllers. Like, you right. can't do that. I should just <laughs> give DI and controllers. Um, I should just make that a thing in Rails 6. How, so something is calling new on the controller. Right, and so, I, can ju I should just have it pass what it's passing to new elsewhere and let you override the constructor. Where would you oh, override the constructor? Then you just would do it make sense to allow you to inject from the route? Like when you're defining the route to say... Oh, I'm, I was even just thinking you would set default arguments. What? <laughs> if, you, if you want DI controllers, it's because you want to override things for tests. Or you want the ability to change behavior at runtime, which is what everybody says about DI, but nobody actually does. Nobody actually does that. Right. <laughs> or, or, you know, in, in, in Java land, if you're going full, like, uh, dagger DI framework DI, right, the, one of the arguments for Springs DI that I heard back when I was doing Enterprise Java was it's great because you can completely change how the application works without having to recompile. Right. <laughs> because that's, that's a need that right. anybody has. Right. Um, I mean, it, it proved itself useful when I was working at a larger company before where like releases were painful things to do. But that's a symptom of another problem. 
Yeah. Um, because what you were able to do is like, oh, we're only going to release once every six weeks or, you know, that was actually pretty quick for where I work. Yeah, I was going to say, um, I wish we could release Rails every six weeks. Right. But so like, so you would know like, oh, I have this thing coming up where I'm going to need to switch out this client library. And so I can program it and ship it in this release. And then when we're ready to go, I can just change the dependency injection container to say, like, use this thing. And that's a change sure. I'm allowed to make, whereas, you know, shipping new software is not something I'm going to be allowed to do whenever that thing changes. But to be fair, right, if that constraint exists on changing code, that constraint should probably exist on changing DI configuration if it fundamentally changes how the software works. It's a that's a pretty arbitrary line, right? I mean, I, I I guess the line would say like that was part of the shipped code, which was already reviewed and tested in integration testing and like that kind of thing. Oh, but it wasn't, right? Probably not. I don't know. <laughs> like like the code path with the new thing that you're now injecting was probably not tested, right? Because you're probably injecting a, a, a test level, right? Sure. But anyway, there would be two concrete needs. Three, you could call it three even. But the biggest ones being stating the defaults and then being able to override them in tests. And then you could also say being able to override them if the controller is used for multiple routes. So like I could see arguments for injecting from the routes. I'm even just thinking, though, to make, to make it as simple as possible. Like if you just state the defaults as default arguments to the constructor. Yeah. Somehow, like this seems like a reasonable thing and that something that might actually not be too hard to do. Right. But something that's probably never going to get through. But I don't know. We'll I mean, see. I don't have to make it a feature. I can just do it and never, never like announce it as a public API thing. But then can you, but then I would feel like I can't use it, right? Well, like, but, that, but then I, I would tell you on the podcast that you can use it. And I tell all my listeners, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because the people who would shoot it down don't listen to the podcast. <laughs> um, like I've had this conversation with people. Ops. This is happening now. I had... <laughs> <laughs> covert ops i had people where like we'd be using rails 4.2 and i'd be like oh you know what you know what'd be great for this is we could use the attributes api that sean wrote and i know is in 4.2 and all we have to do to make this future compatible is alias some methods right and we'll be good and they're like well but it's not public I public api i'm like well 4.2 first of all is not changing so like if it's there right. you're fine and i can tell you it's in five and it's like nope it's not documented api like, people are just uncomfortable about using it. So, number one, just first of all, I would like to high-five those people in general because <laughs> if everybody had that same feeling, my life would be so much easier. But, yeah, no. Like, if I tell you something safe to use, I don't know. The reason I advise against the general advice of using it was because there were specific places where it wasn't finished and I knew that it wouldn't be used. Right. But, like, I could also list all of those. And then the biggest one, the only one that anybody was ever likely to run into was um, passing an array to where or a hash to where. Hmm. Well, that might have been a problem. <laughs> See, I don't know. And, and that's fair because I, you've told me about these things, but I don't remember them and they're not documented. So there's right. no way for me to, like, unless I commit them to memory or ask you every time I'm about to use. I may be able to do that. I'll ask you every time I mean, I'm about you, to use. You do have access like, to me. I am on a Rails 4.2 project and I would like to use this attributes API to do X. Can I do it? And you'd be like, eh, no. Okay, fine. <laughs> but no, I mean, there, there are definitely things where it's like, you know, if people ask. I'll be like, yeah, no, this isn't public API, but it's. I mean, my, my, my bar is basically just, am I specifically planning on changing this? Mm -hmm. And I also do like getting some of the, not like flooded with people asking me that, but I do like to get some level of people asking me how stable a private API thing is, just because it also tends to give me a, a decent radar of like what private APIs are people relying on. Right. And what should, what should we make public basically?
introducing a public API is very rarely as simple as people are relying on this private API. Let's just make it a public API, right? right? The reason why it's private private is because we need to be able to change it, right? Or nobody's thought about the like side effects of making it public. Like we call it in this very specific way, so it's fine. But if we open it up for everybody to call in whatever way they want. It's going to be a problem, so we need to put some yeah. connection on that kind of thing. Like ARL, for example, I was just um, I was just talking to Rafa about this yesterday because uh, I'm you know we're starting to run out of time for five one. I'm thinking I might have to push ARL being public to five two or six, whichever of those is the next version, just because like I, I was thinking about this. And I'm like I have a bunch of things I want to do that are very high priority that I need to get done for five one. And if we're going to make ARL public API, I have a bunch of shit I need to do because there's a ton of stuff in ARL that I'm not comfortable stabilizing. Right. You know, so that's one example of like just there's shit there that I know I want to change, so I can't make it. It's that one. It will eventually just be basically we make a public API. But then the other part of it is I also have to do a docs pass, and that is such a, a large surface area of where it interacts with Active Record that that's that's a week's worth of work to document that. But then another good example would be just the connection adapter API, because I'm 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 planning in five one to introduce public API for third party connection adapters. Yeah, and that's going to no, be a that's completely not the, new. That's API. not the one I want. <laughs> You want the schema number stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, I don't. I I don't particularly care because what I have works, except when people try and stack multiple of them on top of each other. But then I'm just like, hey, I can't do anything for you. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that'll probably just come naturally out of this because connection adapters need to be able to hook into the schema dumper. But like, something something is a, is a terrible interface for like providing new implementations of this nebulous thing. Uh, and I also. The API needs to be structured in such a way that's very clear to contributors that adding new methods to this API, unless they have a default implementation, which is expected to work for all backends, is not backwards compatible. Like, that's a breaking change. Right. Or unless it's optional is the other thing. So it's going to be, you know, that's that's one where it's like, yeah, sure, I could just say, okay, everything about this public API. But, A, I don't want this to be public API from the user's point of view because, like, if I just make this all public, right? It becomes unclear if this is public in like this is the API that, that you know you need to implement uh, if you're implementing a third-party adapter or a user can just look at this as like, oh, this is documented, therefore it's public API, therefore I should be calling it. And I don't want to do that for a lot of the methods that the, the implementers need to override. So I want to draw a very clear separation of like here are the methods that you call specifically is what I'm looking for. You won't actually provide a new class. You'll be calling methods and building a, a new object, which may involve passing your own objects in certain places, especially around typecasting uh, and especially around the actual interface to the raw connection. But that'll that'll be one layer of separation removed from the connection adapter that users inter- interact with. And so all the methods I'll be public will be very like useless to users, basically. Yeah. But that's just another case where it's just like, yeah, I'm going to I want to have a public API around this thing so that third party connection adapters can stop breaking every single version of Rails. But that it's just it's never as simple as like, yeah, we have this private thing. We just make it public and bam, public API. Yeah, that's how it works. <laughs> Whatever. I'm just, uh, just going to call it through send. Kind of how left out or joins worked, but I think that's the only case. <laughs> okay, cool. Let's wrap it up and I'll go get my train. Cool. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 90. Man, I still can't believe it's been 90. <laughs> Rating, uh, as always, ratings and reviews. Wait. <laughs> this is only the 90th time you've done it though <laughs> as always ratings and reviews on iTunes or Google Play are much appreciated if you have feedback about this episode or any others you can tweet us at underscore bike shed email us at host at bike shed.fm or leave a comment on the website thanks for listening to the bike shed and we'll, we'll see you next time <laughs>